Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Privatizing the military has made the PMCs big and bloated. The fatter the PMCs get, the line between civilian and soldier is going to get real blurry. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. (laughs) Today's episode is On a Tired Battlefield, our third episode on 2008's Guns of the Patriots, the fourth Metal Gear Solid title. Today, we will wrap up Act 1 in the Middle East and do our deep dives into Drebin, Merrill, and company. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Merrill marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So you've heard my Manuclear Bomb Patreon announcement a couple times now, but I wanted to do it live just once ahead of this episode, and we'll be in the end housekeeping going forward. So yeah, I've started a Patreon, and the first priority is this here Metal Gear podcast. In addition to our ongoing games coverage, we hope to bring you more special episodes like the sequels remakes episodes, as well as interviews like we did with Mark a couple weeks back. We'll also cover the new Bond flick, No Time to Die, and in due time, add a Metal Gear movie club of sorts where we look at Kojima's favorite films and their influences on MGS. The other projects I'll be launching start with My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast which will be a 20th anniversary celebration of the Lord of the Rings. Yes, 20th. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it, damn it. Sorry. No, you're fine. Anyone who knows and or follows me will know I cannot shut up about Peter Jackson's trilogy, so I'm going to make some hay there with my wonderful friend, Emily Robinson, who knows way more than I do. Expect this podcast sometime in mid to late October. And secondly, I'll be doing a Final Fantasy VI podcast called Searching for Friends, where my pal Steven and I will rebuild the world of FF6 with a lot of the same character analysis and thematic deep dives we do here. Keep an eye out for that by the end of 2021. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and these other projects over at patreon.com slash bomb. The Patreon tiers and bonuses will expand over the course of the next few months. Also, nothing really to do with video games or films, but fuck... My co-host Brian rules and does some killer NBA draft and summer league work. You can support him over at patreon.com slash brianjnba. It rhymes. When we last left off, Snake had just made his way through the militia stronghold. He finds himself in a large warehouse with a brand new, customized M4 assault rifle laying on the ground. As he approaches the rifle, he realizes he's not alone. There's a monkey? In a diaper? Drinking soda? Oh, and some dude named Drevin, who we will break down right now. In other words, I'm a gun launderer. You can call me Drevin. Drebin. 
Drebin is one of the few truly new characters appearing in Metal Gear Solid 4. The name Drebin is not unique to him, but is shared by all gun launderers in the story. The one we meet is Drebin 893, so we can at least assume some 900 of these launderers exist. And the name Drebin is an explicit reference to Lieutenant Frank Drebin of the Naked Gun films, played by the late great Leslie Nielsen. The idea is that Drebin launders weapons so that you can use them, in effect giving you a naked gun. 893 comes from a Japanese card game, and the numbers together in Japanese can spell Yakuza. Even his codec, 148.93, ends in 893. Drebin is usually depicted in a brown blazer with shirt and tie underneath, with camo pants, bleached blonde hair, and earrings that's evocative of Dennis Rodman. Drebin remains one of the few black characters in Metal Gear, though early designs had him as a Caucasian and even as a cowboy. I'm assuming that part of his, because Kojima always did look at, like he cast English voice actors too, I'm pretty sure, like mm-hmm. himself. I'm sure once they got Kari Payton on board, they were like, well, if, if that was a debate at all, I'm sure that swung it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Don't want to go too far without mentioning Little Grey. That's the soda drinking diaper monkey from earlier. Little Grey was mostly added to add some color and MGS weirdness to these Drebin scenes, which are often heavy on the exposition. The idea came about when Eiji Morisaki, Raiden's motion capture actor, showed off his monkey impersonation. Uh, I want to hop over to Drebin's ATV next, or a striker, spelled with a Y, like the X-Men villain, of course. You're welcome. Or the Mortal Mortal Kombat character. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, We find ourselves inside, outside, and on top of this striker during the course of the game. It's similar to the ones used by PMCs, but Drebin is tricked out with more weaponry and uses its own version of Octocamo. And painted on its side is Drebin's catchphrase. I have you. I spelled like the body part in that quote. In the story, Drebin serves as your gunsmith selling you weapons and a main source of exposition. Note, there are like five characters in this game who qualify as a main source of exposition. (laughs) Drebin will tell you lots about the system, nanomachines, and the Beauty and the Beast core specifically. Each of these ladies will get an overwrought, unnecessary, absurdist backstory explaining their PTSD that we'll tackle as they come. Drebin's character is strange in that he's one of the few who is working for the Patriots, both overtly as a gun launderer and covertly in tracking and aiding Solid Snake, since the system has identified Liquid Ocelot as a threat. That said, he doesn't have any outward love for them or their system, and gladly helps Snake in bringing them down. Drebin walks this line the entire game, maybe most perfectly captured when Snake asks, Are you with the Patriots? No, sir. I ain't no lale lule. <laughs> I mean, I'm no patriot. Some quick fictional history before we move on. Drebin is a former child soldier, stolen by the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, an anti-Ugandan government group, and forced to fight from a young age. He earned his giant scar on the left side of his head from that time. The war he fought in was one of the Patriots' proxy wars to keep the war economy humming, and they eventually recruited him outright, where he would begin working for AT Security, AT standing in for Arms Tech. If you recall, the Arms Tech president was one of the victims of Fox Die in MGS1. It seems the company has continued to flourish after his death and the Metal Gear Rex scandal nine years prior. 
Drebin will go on to be an uneasy ally throughout the game, as it's obvious he has his own mission or agenda while he abets Snake. He's also a manifestation of the war economy itself, being your marketplace for weapons and the best way to raise DP. That uneasy relationship between Drebin reflects the uneasy, uneasy relationship Snake and Otacon have with the war economy. They needed to complete their mission. But also maybe the uneasy relationship anti-war creators have when making anti-war art, which some say is impossible because at some level it glorifies war too. Let's plan to circle b- back to that point later on in our MGS4 coverage. Any thoughts on Drebin? I like Curry Payton, so I don't know. It's not like he is bad, like he's a bad character. It's just thinking about it. Like we said, he's one of the two or three new characters in this game, and he's entirely an exposition device. Like, I think they do, they try to make him vaguely kind of cool, but it just doesn't. I don't know. You're never excited to see Drebin, like you should be, for like a cool new, like an important new character. I honestly think part of it is that he's, he's too much like, He's really the only point of contact you have with the Patriots, and he's not an antagonist in any way. He's not; he's just there to sell you guns and help out. And I, I feel like there could have been another character. I don't know. I feel like the gun launderer character could have been a different character than the the, the double agent Patriots character. Like, there's no deep throat in this game, right? There yeah, really I guess could have that's... been. There really could have been. Yes, I think it's more. So it's more what Drebin isn't than what he is. He's fine. I don't know. I said Carrie Payton's a Carrie Payton's an excellent voice actor, so he helps out a lot. But yeah, I don't think there's any issue with the performance. It's just mostly, and I think a lot of it is just hurt that he's the one who has to give those Beauty and the Beast eulogies. Yes, which are almost yeah. uniformly awful. Yes, and all of them are just a little more absurd version of the Vamp one from MGS two. Like it worked for Vamp back then, but then they just kind of cranked it up and. You don't really care, and they go on too long. And, you know, Drebin, unfortunately, just gets associated with those segments of the game. Mm -hmm. In the Drebin cutscene, a few more things occur. Drebin offers Snake that lovely customizable M4, but Snake can't pull the trigger. Bad nanomachines. Or older ones, rather. Drebin explains this to Snake, and Snake is rightly freaked out about this guy knowing the ins and outs of nanos. He injects Snake with suppressor nanos to allow him to use his laundered guns, but we'll find out later there's something else in that ejection, something put there by the Patriots. Which, naturally here, you get that flashback cue to Shadow Moses and Fox die. It's definitely a little funny that Snake implicitly is thinking of, like, he's thinking of Naomi at this point, because I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he already knows she's there. I think he recognizes her. And he's thinking of like, like he's explicitly like, I hope I don't get betrayed by this guy. And then he just lets him do it anyway. And turns out he got betrayed by that guy. And he's not even like, mm-hmm. it's like he completely cannot learn. Yeah. I'll trust you. Even though, even though I'm literally thinking right now, why I shouldn't, I'll still trust you. Oh crap. <laughs> this is going to make sense to you, but it'll make sense to somebody. Um, he's basically WCW sting every three months when in, in the 90s when Sting was like the biggest thing in wrestling they would have him be like he'd have, he'd have a new best friend and he'd be like I hope I don't get betrayed by this guy and then two weeks later he'd get betrayed by that guy he'd be like dang oh that's that's the era of wrestling I do remember and yes yeah. that's that's a perfect analogy um, it seems a bit credulous that Snake would go along yeah. with all these um, or credulous of Snake to go along with it all I guess it worked out but it's also do we think that Snake is is smarter about this than than he appears and he's like letting it happen or is he just a fucking idiot he could be tired he's very old it's true 
Before we get back into the gameplay swing, we get one last cutscene. A shitty one, very literally. Snake spies a soldier investigating a drum can from which some very flatulent sounds are emerging. The can is overturned to reveal a soldier squatting and shitting, shit not pictured, thankfully, and clearly dealing with a case of the runs or diarrhea. If I told you these fart jokes would be narratively relevant, would you believe me? Of course you would, it's a Kojima game. The shitting soldier flees with his discoverer in pursuit. Clearly not bothered by any lingering smells, Snake looks approvingly at the abandoned drum can. He adds it to his inventory, and it acts as this game's best version of the cardboard box, since it fits in a little better with the Warzone backgrounds. You can also raise your psych while sitting uh, in the can, and you can knock it on its side, and Snake can roll inside of it, knocking out any enemies in the path. Um, but do it too long, and Snake will get a bit woozy and eventually vomit. Which, you know, shits and vomits. Some real Metal Gear shit here. Snake loves the poop. He loves the poop. He likes smelling it. Mm. He's a little freak. A couple more maps here, this time with even more warfare and firefights than before. Some of the buildings are actively collapsing around Snake, changing the map in real time. You'll also encounter more enemy vehicles, ATVs, helicopters patrol this area. However, there are mortar shells and rocket placements that you can use to take him down. Uh, just as the game incre- uh, goes on, you'll find that the firepower, both in terms of your enemies and your own, are increasing. This is the, uh, the coolest thing about this act to me, is the, just how chaotic it is, mm-hmm. the fighting. I think it feels the most like a war zone mm-hmm. of all the, uh, what's it called, settings we're going to visit. Um, it definitely feels like uh, South America is more of like a invasion or you know attack of a stronghold whereas this definitely just feels like this entire region or city or whatever it is is at war all the time eventually you'll come upon the advent palace the building in which snake is supposed to meet his informants there are no troops here but booby traps to high hell sleep gas mines laser trip wires and claymores all around up at up at the top of the building, a PMC soldier with familiar, waffling voice holds up Snake. Snake turns around to see the same soldier who recently battled off the shits in that drum can. More relevantly, he notices the, son- the soldier's gun is still safetyed. Snake teases the rookie, who's no rookie, he's a 10-year vet, before CQCing him down to the ground. That soldier's backup arrives at this moment, including its woman leader. Things are about to head south when Snake recognizes a patch on the woman's fatigues, a foxhound patch. Suddenly, recognition falls over both characters. The woman recognizes her hero, Solid Snake, and Snake is startled to realize his informant is none other than... Meryl. That's right, Meryl from Shadow Moses makes her big return to the Solid franchise, once again voiced by Debbie Mae West. Meryl was mentioned or referenced a few times in MGS2, but never shown, and no reference was made to whether she was alive or dead in the game itself. If you remember, the original MGS had two endings, one where Meryl dies and one where she doesn't. While Meryl would appear in the Snake Tales bonus content on the MGS2 Substance re-release, her appearance in MGS4 confirmed her surviving the Shadow Moses incident. This would also be confirmed in supporting documentation for MGS2's development. Since Shadow Moses, Meryl had thrown herself at the military lifestyle, not unlike before Shadow Moses. She still idolized Solid Snake, much like before as well. She'd eventually go on to take leadership of Rat Patrol, who'll get, who we'll get to shortly. 
Rat Patrol is part of the U.S. Army's oversight of PMC activity known as the USA CIDC or U.S. Army... Army, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Or U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command. During this gap, she would also come to learn that Colonel Campbell is her biological father, which Snake and the player learned during Shadow Moses. She'd become estranged from him once Roy marries someone that's younger than Meryl, who we will later find out is Rosemary, Ryden's now ex. It turns out this was some great plan to protect Rosemary from the Patriots in a totally not sexist writing trope, but we'll untangle that as we get into Jack and Rose later. It all seems to stay above board, though, and swerve away from the pervy stuff, but you know, it's still Kojima. This is Rat Patrol Team Zero One. We're with the CID, one of the bodies investigating PMC activity. As aforementioned, Merrill is now the head of Rat Patrol Team 01, which is tasked with monitoring PMC activity. At the start of the game, her team would be the sixth to be assigned to investigate Liquid's PMCs. All five teams before her had been killed, presumably by Liquid himself. Merrill is also serving as a tool of the Patriots in this game, but she's an unknowing accomplice unlike Drebin. Rat Patrol 01 is represented as Rat PT 01, which can be clumsily anagrammed to Patriot, which is explained in the game's ending. The other members of her team are Ed, Jonathan, and Johnny Sasaki, aka Akiba. Akiba is the pooping man. <laughs> is the only one of these characters that does much, and I'm still debating whether Poopy Pants McGee is going to get his own character breakdown later. We do know who Meryl marries, but he kind of sucks regardless. Although it, 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 he does he does lead to, I think, one of the unintentionally funniest things in Metal Gear Solid 4, which is the second he takes his mask off and he, it's revealed he's hot, he immediately stops pooping and becomes extremely confident. And it's like, that's almost like a, that's like a, a scary movie level joke. Like, <laughs> like, I can't believe that Kojima was like, this, this is really going to get people, they're going to love him now. It's like, no, it sucks. He sucks. I hate him. But I almost like that more because it's so like obviously stupid i love it it's it almost that analogy i'm pulling for here it reminds me of like she's all that or the princess <laughs> diaries where yeah. it's like you know curly hair glasses clumsy lady and then you straighten their hair and take off the glasses and all of a sudden they're like hot and fully competent at everything um that's you know abridging those stories fairly well but you know whatever those are stories he definitely is familiar with mm-hmm. mr k as we're gonna call him The four of them are decked out in khaki army pants and upper body wear based on sneaking suit tech. Meryl also brandishes a foxhound patch as mentioned, presumably out of nostalgia, but I'm afraid to ask her about her flair. And she still carries that giant desert eagle handgun. Meryl and her team are your informants from Campbell, though Meryl didn't know about her father's involvement and is quite pissed. For a minute. Then, as if out of nowhere, she becomes quite calm about everything. We learn that her emotions are being regulated by the system so that she can remain a good and even-keeled soldier. Just like Drebin's character is a stand-in for the war economy, Meryl and Rat Patrol stand in for the system, and and since we've ominously mentioned the system many times already, let's go in-depth on what exactly that is. They've implemented a system that monitors in real-time every single soldier engaged in combat action, whether he's state army or PMC. Each individual soldier has been fully ID tagged with nanomachines injected into their bodies for that purpose. 
The nanomachines keep track of the soldiers and their real-time personal data 24 hours a day. They monitor each man's position, movement speed, reserve ammo, firing accuracy, wounds, rations, water intake and supply, sweat secreted, heart rate, blood pressure and sugar levels, oxygen, all the data gathered on body condition. The system, aka the Sons of the Patriots, or SOP, it's this very system that Liquid intends to take over to turn into his Guns of the Patriots agenda, which you could call GOP and put a and put a you know strained political reading on it, but that's so road I'm not even going to bother. I also want to highlight that SOP, of course, remains standard operating procedure, which makes the acronym a doublespeak as the system is now the standard operating procedure. In that, war has become routine. SOP is basically a battlefield control system governed by the Patriot AIs and its proxies. Using nanomachines, SOP allowed governments and watchdog agencies to monitor and provide oversight over both state militaries and PMCs. The system would help to enhance the soldiers' abilities while also allowing them to be shut down if they start behaving in a way that threatens the system. This was essentially the price, perhaps the war price, of the shift away from government militaries to private ones in this broken world of snakes and metal gears. This idea of total battlefield control is something the Patriots and Zero have been toying with since the 1970s. It repeatedly comes up in the events of Peace Walker and the Phantom Pain as a way to unify the world under a single will, the will of the boss, as interpreted by Zero. He saw that the U.S. vs. USSR Age of Deterrence, or detente, was eroding and a new era of proxy wars was emerging. As Old Snake says in the opening monologue, the Age of Deterrence has given away to the Age of Control. We'll, cir we'll circle back to these origins when we get to those later games. In the Shadow Moses incident, Naomi Hunter injected Solid Snake with nanomachines that would help his support team monitor his progress, but also control his actions, like not using a firearm in the Warhead storage facility. Nanomachines were also used to regulate the temperament of Gray Fox, a dead man kept alive by machines and his own rage. These nanomachines would be the predecessor to those used in the system and are often referred to as first generation. And these nanos are intricately are intricately related to the FoxDie program as well. SOP as we know it was developed by AT Security, again, ArmsTech, one of the companies involved with the Rex project and a proxy for Patriot defense projects. By 2014, they would be fully implemented in all state militaries and PMCs, and they were also beginning to be used for law enforcement as well. While only mentioned, this speaks to the post-9-11 world, where every advancement in military tech would trickle down to cops, who would use military-grade weapons to attack camps of the unhoused or protesters who dared to protest police execution of civilians. Speaking of real-world readings, I think the name Sons of the Patriots invokes the meme of Solidus's Sons of Liberty from MGS2. In that, it takes Solidus's radical positions, defangs it in all but name, and then absorbs it into the existing status quo, which is basically what the U.S. Democratic Party does to any movement outside of its neoliberal worldview. Tax the rich. Yeah, that's so radical right there. I briefly mentioned the functions of SOP, but let's spell them out. The first is that it allows members of a unit to subconsciously work together as a team to tap into their teammates' senses and awareness. 
This allowed for better coordinated attacks, like we'll see at the end of the frog battle coming up. Second function is to monitor chemical balances in every soldier. It could help minimize pain if injured or help calm nerves if frantic. Artificial combat highs can be induced by controlling adrenaline and endorphins in the body. The function also helps regulate inflow of nutrients and outflow of toxins, like sweat and shit, so Johnny's repeated bathroom problems should stand out as unusual to the system. The third function was to control the use of weapons on the battlefield, which is what all that ID tag soldiers with ID tag guns dialogue is about. The idea behind this was to prevent soldiers going rogue, committing war crimes, and things of the like. Uh, I'll say war crimes outside of the bound of acceptable war crimes by the status quo. When the war and economy are synonymous, you want everything to be routine and within the acceptable range of horrors of war, like I just said. In the 2012, sorry, in the 2012 film Skyfall, we see 007's classic Walter PPK get the ID tag treatment as only he can fire it. The system key, as we'd find out, is Big Boss's DNA. Perhaps as a way for Zero to stick it to Naked Snake one last time after decades of feuding. It unofficially makes Big Boss, our protagonist in MGS3, and who kicked off this whole saga, the linchpin for this dystopia. Liquid will try both his own and Solid Snake's DNA first in attempting to unlock the system, and eventually does so using Solidus's DNA, which is a perfect copy for Big Boss. This bit actually helps ties up a loose end from NGS1 in that Big Boss's body was among Foxhound's demands of the U.S. government. Liquid claimed it was to help treat the the next-gen special forces with gene therapy, but both he and Ocelot probably knew it held bigger importance to the Patriot system. We'll obviously discuss this more in the later acts of the game. One last thing. Anyone under control of the system is not able to say the word Patriot unless you have the code word clearance, like the president in MGS2. Instead, they just say Lali Lule Lo, which should sound familiar to anyone who played MGS2 or even the Easter egg in MGS3. Hard to speak truth to power if you can't even name that power, which is what the Patriots' logic seems to be. So even people like Ames from MGS2 was not fully in the know and was operating as part of the system in place. So, what do you think? Is your age of heroes finally over? Returning to the game, our time with Rat Patrol is cut short. Johnny's binoculars have revealed their location, or rather, the sunlight reflecting off its lenses. And our team has to prepare to take out the Frogs, or Haven Troopers. The Frogs are Liquid's personal security team, all elite women soldiers in powered suits, not unlike the B&B Corps. They get their codename Frogs for their abilities to jump and stick to walls and ceilings. This sticking ability is explained away using the Vanderwall's force, which speaks to the attractive repulsive force between molecules outside of the context of covalent or ionic bonds. None of that's important, of course, but explaining the fantastical with the sprinkling of science is always a big part of Metal Gear Solid. Anyway, Snake and Rat Patrol blast their way out of the Advent Palace, slowly making their way uh, out an underground p- parking lot. Um, do you want to talk about this battle at all? Um, it's it's all right. It's fine. Uh, I remember the only thing the only thing I really remember about it is that it. I always felt like like they're almost like the Rat Patrols. Not only were they like they're good. That's that's to be expected. They're like in your way a lot, so it was just kind of hard to really get going in this fight. But that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. 
like again, again, part of the part of the the point of this game is that like Snake is not going to be this huge bombastic soldier fighting off waves of enemies. Like he can barely fucking stand up. So, mm. and you can make a reading about like governments and bureaucracy getting in your way um, if you wanted to. Like yeah. that's a manifestation of the gameplay. It does also kind of stand in as. Uh, we mentioned every game kind of has that one checkpoint where it's like, okay, you have to know how to shoot a gun uh, yeah. if you want to continue playing this game. Um, it's usually an early shootout like you had in Rosfiat in MGS3 um, or in that hallway in the tanker in MGS2. Um, this is the first time you really have to engage soldiers and they just make sure you're you know, not that bad at the game, basically. In the very end, three frogs get the drop on Rat Patrol, but here we see the SOP system in full swing. Meryl, Ed, and Jonathan are able to sync up and each pick a separate target to take out. With the frog subdued, Snake makes his way out of the Advent Palace and moves towards Ocelot's location. If you defeated the frogs non-lethally, there will be a frog statue waiting for you in the lot. For all the major boss fights, save Vamp, your reward for a non-lethal takedown will be these trophies. Important to know that Snake does not actually fight Vamp either, so... Mm-hmm. or does at, it be is it the, yeah go ahead or at, at best you, you shoot rockets at him on occasion that's all you really do with vamp um i wanted to say too it's funny we didn't even really mention ed and jonathan the only bit of trivia i have on either of them is that ed is voiced by dave finoy who i like dave finoy who was in the walking dead game and it's just like a guy who shows up in a lot of stuff so it's good always good to hear dave finoy yeah, and uh, Jonathan has a mohawk that's cut in the shape of an exclamation point. Really? Uh, I never noticed that. They don't make any... They don't make an explicit joke about it? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? There's no reference to it at all. As Snake continues towards Liquid's encampment, the tide of battle seems to be turning. In the next couple maps, we see that the militia are pushing the PMC soldiers back with the help of their own uh, vehicles, tanks, and bulldozers. This is a great spot for Snake to help out as it's possible to essentially win this map and clear it of all enemies, which the militia will celebrate by raising a big cheer. Snake follows the militia as they push forward, but all of a sudden, the militia bulldozer is stopped dead in his tracks. A giant robotic wolf is holding it back, and the militia are immediately engulfed in fear as they know what's coming. The Beauty and the Beast Corps, called BMB Corps for short. We'll break them down more thoroughly in a future episode, but in this harrowing cutscene, we get to see the range of destruction they are capable of. As the wolf holds the charge in place, the other members reveal themselves. The raven begins the onslaught from above, cutting through soldiers and bombarding them with rockets. The octopus sheds her camouflage and begins squeezing and impaling militiamen with her dock-lock-like tentacles. And finally, we see soldiers lose their minds and open fire on their men, with marionettes strings barely visible from the possessed soldiers. This is the work of the Mantis, who hovers above the battlefield pulling the strings, with the phantom of Psychomantis right behind him, right behind her, if you go into the L1 trigger view. After only a few moments, the entire militia is wiped out, ending their advancement and any threat they pose to Liquid's camp. The beasts retire, and Snake shakes off the deja vu and presses forward. The final couple maps take us into the heart of Ocelot's camp. The streets of the city give way to a fortified base with tents and watchtowers and more traditional enemy patrols. Once through, we reach the end of the act and the closing cutscene. Snake works his way into its heart, spying Ocelot and some woman on a platform up ahead. 
He also sees Meryl nearby, who immediately susses out that Snake isn't here for threat assessment, but to kill Ocelot. Meryl is pissed, but admits she can't really do anything about it. She has to remain neutral in her oversight of PMC activity. But before Snake even has a chance to move on Ocelot, our big bad says, Activate it. A haze of confusion falls on all the soldiers nearby, including Snake and Rat Patrol. Then, all of a sudden, everyone starts freaking out. Soldiers begin laughing, crying, raging, pretty much all going insane. Some start vomiting, others start fighting their comrades. This is Ocelot hacking the SOP system. He can disable it, which allows all the suppressed fury and sorrow and fear and pain to bubble up in all these soldiers. Well, almost all the soldiers, as Johnny Sazaki seems to be the only one unaffected. Snake is also beset by this, but his symptoms, symptoms are far more mild. A couple reasons for this, I postulate. First, Snake already had hardened emotions from his previous wars. He wasn't reliant on a system to keep them suppressed. And his generation of nanomachines, as discussed with Drebin, are first gen and don't work the same as those in the current SOP generation. See, I, I always took this to be that his symptoms were just as severe. He's just tougher than everybody else. I, I like that reading, too. Because he's solid snake. And like you said, he's more used to this shit. Like, he's already had to do it. So he wouldn't have... Because you get the... I, I don't know if you're supposed to get the sense that most of the uh, PMC troops are... It's just what the sense I get, from at least from the commercials, that a lot of these are, like, extremely green rookies. Like, these are people just picked off of the street, mm-hmm. pump full of nanomachines, given, like, basic training, and then thrown out there. So they have no idea how to deal with this stuff in combat. They would have no need to if the system is working as intended. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with that. So, yeah, I, I don't think... I think if there's any hardened uh, veterans in this, it was all the militia guys who are dead. So, you know... Mm-hmm. It would make sense that Snake would be more more prepared to deal with that shit yeah. than, than like a 19-year-old from Iowa. All that is to say, Snake has enough wherewithal to fight his way to the front line, but Ocelot isn't oblivious. He greets Snake in iconic fashion. Brother! It's been too long. For my A Song of Ice and Fire fans, in A Storm of Swords Samwell 2, when Sam first meets Cold Hands, Cold Hands calls out to him with, Brother! And I always read it in the liquid ocelot voice. You got a brother for me there, Brian? Brother! There it is. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Ocelot monologues at Snake for a little while, telling him that they aren't exact copies of their father, Big Boss. Snake, still struggling from whatever Ocelot just unleashed, sees the woman he noted earlier approaching. It's Naomi. Snake and Otacon had briefly mentioned searching for her in the game's opening, and here we find her alongside Liquid. She injects herself with a syringe, which drops at Snake's feet. She tells Snake some poorly localized quote about (laughs) confronting his destiny, which we'll play to close this episode. She departs with Ocelot, while Johnny Sasaki shows up in the end to drag Snake away to safety, which will close our first act of Metal Gear Solid 4. I like real quick that you mentioned that Naomi in particular has a lot of anime lines in this game, which is like, what are you talking about? She has like these 40 second lines that are complete nonsense mm-hmm. that just sound like the end of every anime or every poorly localized anime from like 1997. Well, I guess she's not saying fucking damn as much because those, <laughs> but still it's, yeah, she's, she more than anybody falls prey to, I guess Draven does a little, but that's just more because, uh, Exposition is hard to do in any language, mm-hmm. but 
Yeah, Naomi's got really bad anime dialogue in this game. And Snake, you know, kind of just escapes all that um, just because he's the player. So he's usually not filling people in. And it's just David Hayter's giving his, you know, strong vocal performance for the most part. It's hard. I mean, I guess I guess he does have anime anime speech because he's always like responding to things with questions. But that's just Snake at this point. You're used to it. Mm -hmm. It's a trope of his character. And uh, when I... Uh, maybe some context and this isn't this is going to be exact but when i say poorly localized um i believe in japanese what naomi says is um if you won't be a prisoner to fate confront it um but in the english localization it's and you'll hear that in a couple minutes or in a couple seconds to end this episode but she says if you won't be a prisoner to fate go on fulfill your destiny which just seems like two absolutely contradictory statements (laughs) um and so there's a lot of places like that. And as Brian said, it's usually Naomi that gets the worst of it um, in this game, which, you know, speaks to why she's probably one of the worst realized characters out of the cast in this game. Which also speaks to, um, I know that the woman who translated a lot of MGS2 doesn't think much of Kojima's writing, but she, like the localization in 2 is really good. Like She did a great job. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that really separates this game. I don't know if I don't think the localization is as good. Maybe it wasn't as good in three, but I think three was about like I, like I said when we did three. Almost every cutscene in three is about what's happening right then, so there's not a lot of room for like ruminations. I mean, I guess the boss has some of that, but I just think it works better for her. Yeah, um, and like a lot of your exposition really comes from like Granin, so a lot like the legacy is like the only thing you don't. That's not happening right in front of you at any one moment. Um, and because you could say it's casting, but like <laughs> casting is not an issue with Naomi. Jennifer Hale is, is one of the great wonderful. voice actors of all time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just it doesn't work at all. I was just bored, senseless by Naomi every time I saw her in this game. And it's not a thing that happens in, the, in one. She's not boring in MGS1. She uh, She's one of the more interesting characters, honestly, yeah. in MGS1. It's just confusing. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll have a full Naomi section yeah. in our uh, Middle East. I actually believe it'll probably be our next episode on MGS4. So our, uh, our Argentina, whatever, right? Yeah, South America. They South do, America. they don't say explicitly, uh, but I don't know why I think I also, Argentina. There aren't any, there aren't any Nazis in in Rack Two, so I don't know why I'm thinking Argentina. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I did put in our show notes for the next episode, Brian rant here when we get to Naomi. <laughs> Uh, so we'll we'll definitely take some time picking apart her character. Snake, if you won't be a prisoner to fate, then go. Fulfill your destiny. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsonsfront on Twitter and Instagram. Support this podcast and my other projects over at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, who is me. <laughs> uh, shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, here's to you.
It unofficially makes big pond. Big pond. It it, <laughs> it unofficially makes Big Boss our protagonist in MGS three, 